Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of MindShift Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Clint Haycock. I'm just going to do this little introduction because this is a pretty short conversation with Dr. Terry Daniel, who runs a podcast, co-hosts a podcast called Ask Dr. Death. Terry and I had a really good conversation about the psychology of religion and how religion affects your mental health or how it can affect your mental health. And it's only about a half an hour long, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. We bring up a lot of really important topics around this issue of grief and death and dying. And that's, of course, what she is. She's a hospice chaplain, and that's kind of her specialty. So I wanted to talk to somebody about this actually a few months ago, and I apologize for why this episode took so long to get out there. It's because I had a bunch of episodes that I did on Dominion Theology, Christian Right, talking to people like Frank Schaefer and Mark Potok. And then just more recently here, I did an episode with Frederick Clarkson of the Political Research Associates. And I've been doing a lot of stuff around Christian, the Christian right, Dominion theology, all the stuff that happened around the end of the Trump era and how the Christian right played a role in that, especially around the January 6th insurrection. So it all does somehow relate, though, especially as talking to Conway and Siegelman, you know, the thing they mentioned was that when they started studying the Christian right, it was because they had already been doing a lot of work on cult psychology with their book Snapping, just which just came out right before the Jonestown tragedy down in Guyana, the Jonestown massacre, and off the back of that, that's what led them into the Christian right. So there has to be a relationship. There is a relationship between mental health and religion. And of course, in my experience, coming out of evangelical Christianity, I've seen it, I've experienced it, and Terry and I talk a little bit more about that in this episode. So I'm not going to go too long into it. I just want to mention that coming up next, the next actual episode, we're going to get back into this issue of religious trauma syndrome. I'm going to be talking with Andrew Jasko, who is also a therapist, but coming at it from a very different point of view. He's into psychedelics for healing PTSD and religious trauma syndrome. So we had a wild conversation that I think you'll get a lot out of. And there's a lot of information that Andrew gives in terms of how to heal those things using psychedelics, really a guided sort of therapy session. So that's coming up as well. Also, speaking of which, there's going to be an episode. I'm going to be putting it up on the Mindship Podcast Facebook page, the conversation that we had with Andrew Jasko last month on our Mindship Zoom call. We have these every month for Patreon supporters of the show. There's also one with Thomas Hanna, and that's also on the Mindship Podcast Facebook page. And this was from the Mindship Zoom call that we did the week before. And he's also an ex-pastor like me, but he went a different direction. He started studying, got his degree, and became a counselor, a therapist, who also specializes in RTS, or Religious Trauma Syndrome. So you can watch those two Zoom calls on the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. So really cool stuff out there. Hopefully it'll help you a little bit if you're deconstructing or thinking about deconstructing. So let's get on into the chat with Dr. Terry Daniel, Ask Dr. Death. 
We're going to be looking at this issue of the psychology of religion and how religion affects our mental health. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Terry Daniel. I'm so glad to welcome back returning guest, Dr. Death, Dr. Terry Daniel. Thank you for dropping back in, Terry. Thank you so much. And thank you for mentioning Dr. Death. That's my podcast, Ask Dr. Death. That is true. I was on it a while ago. We had a really fantastic discussion, kind of about my backstory and growing up in evangelicalism, which it sounds like your listeners wouldn't really know that much about. No, generally my listeners are not recovering from from religion. They're they've kind of either never really been there or they've been recovered for a really long time and they're just way far past it. And they're exploring other things. A lot of them kind of go into the woo-woo realm a little bit. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are, are just really kind of like me, which is, you know, we talked about this before, like the definition of an atheist, right? Are you an atheist because you don't embrace the traditional Judeo-Christian model of God? Or are you an atheist because you don't believe in anything, for lack of a better term, supernatural? I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. But if it's the former, then I would call myself an atheist. Right. Well, you you weren't raised in any sort of religion or or did you grow up in it? No, I wasn't raised in any. Well, my family was Jewish, Mm -hmm. but they were completely secular, social Jews. Their whole thing was having, you know, the holidays and getting the family together. We celebrated Hanukkah and the kids got one present each night for the eight nights of Hanukkah. We did mm-hmm. not even have a Bible in my house. Right. Um, no, and my father, when I was 14, I asked him, where did Jews go when they die? And he said, to the Cadillac dealership. Right. So that, that was <laughs> okay. my religious education. Good theology. So really quickly, I know we're going to be talking about the psychology of religion. You were slated to teach this class this summer, which unfortunately it sounds like it's fallen through. That Can you one, give yeah. the listeners a little bit of an update? Why do you call yourself Dr. Death? What's this podcast all about? What do you do for a living? Yeah. What do I do for a living? So um, I work in hospice and end of life care, and that's been a passion of mine for about 14 years now. Going back into my childhood with the non-religious upbringing, I was always curious about what's the big deal? What's this talk about religion that seems so important? So I took it upon myself to actually start reading the Bible when I was like 16. Then I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Then I read all kinds of mystical, spiritual stuff. And I've kind of been on that path since I was a kid. So fast forward 40, 50 years now, I got very interested in death studies. And that's because my son died when he was 16. And I actually kind of experienced some mystical stuff around his death. And I thought, this is kind of interesting. I want to be around dying people some more. Well, so I went and became a hospice uh, volunteer. And I would be with these people who would be communicating with their dead relatives or seeing visions and it was comforting and wonderful and beautiful to them sometimes it had a religious context most of the time it didn't and i was fascinated by this and i wanted to talk with people about these experiences but in hospice volunteering you really aren't allowed to have those kinds of conversations with people so i decided to go back to school and get the necessary credentials to become a hospice chaplain and Long story short with that, my uh, partner in crime, Dr. Karen Wyatt, she's a physician, hospice doctor. We started this podcast called Ask Dr. Death, where people could ask us questions about death and dying. 
and grieving. And, you know, because if you've got someone in your family who's dying, which everybody does now pretty much with COVID, nobody on the staff at the hospital has time to explain to you what's happening physically. How many people can explain what's happening non-physically? Probably nobody, but, you know, we draw from different cultural perspectives and depending on the dying person, what they experience in terms of their visions and visitations is influenced by their religious beliefs and their cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, influences. yeah, when we did our podcast, it must have been almost a couple of years ago now. Shocking how time flies. But <laughs> you, you told that story about your son. And I mean, we got into a lot more of the detail around death and dying and your experiences as a hospice, sort of a, I guess, a secular chaplain. Mm-hmm. Some really interesting stories, especially around Christians who are afraid of death. That's one of the things that really, I still remember you saying that. And I wasn't prepared for that. You said that what you found in your experience is that typically it's the Christians who are just absolutely terrified of dying, which shouldn't be on paper. You know, we always said when I was a Christian, oh, you don't shouldn't have any fear of death. You know, the earth is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm waiting to go to heaven. You know, know, why are they so afraid of death? I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, I think that's when I was on your show when my book first came out called Mm -hmm. Grief and God. Uh, when religion does more harm than healing. And there's something I'm sure you know called proper Christian grief. Have you heard that expression? Yes. I mean, that's really a thing. And the Christian belief is you should not be afraid of death and you should not grieve the death of other people because they're going to heaven to hang out with Jesus. So Mm -hmm. you should be happy. And so we get a lot of people in grief that are really messed up because of this, because their husband died or their child died, and they're in terrible pain. And they can't express their pain or share it with their church community. And they're angry because maybe their kid got you know, run over by a drunk driver or some terrible thing. And they can't express their anger because anger is a sin too, right? You're just supposed to accept, you know, God must have needed another flower in his garden. Yeah, another angel you know, in his choir. Another angel in the choir. And uh, it's so damaging and it just breaks people to pieces. So in, in terms of facing their own death, what I have found in, you know, in these years I've done chaplain work, and I am a secular chaplain, I never thought of using that title, but that works, is that the Christians are the most afraid because they don't feel like they're worthy and they have this notion of hell. And they'll say things mm-hmm. to me like, you know, I was a sinner or I, you know, questioned my faith, and I'm still not sure that I believe. So I'm going to be dying in a couple of months here. Am I going to go to hell? They actually asked me that question. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know you're absolutely right, because I met a friend of mine in Seattle a couple years ago when I was going back and forth over there. In fact, my father-in-law was dying of a brain tumor, which is another whole story. But I met up with a friend that I hadn't seen in probably 20 years. We went to high school together. And I said, how's your parents? He said, oh, my dad's passed away. And he said one of the things that was interesting about the whole dying experience when he went through it with his dad was he said the same thing. My dad was a staunch fundamentalist. He was an elder in the church. He was a a leader, worship leader, and all the rest of it. But on his deathbed, he was absolutely terrified to die for the same reason. He thought he hadn't been good enough for God. And it was like really a, a sense of cognitive dissonance. Man, you're going... I thought you were a strong believer your whole life. He was well into his 80s when he died. And he was absolutely terrified. Yeah. And then, you know, and the atheists are not terrified at all. Hmm. They're fine. I mean, they they have attachments to their lives because there's just the one life and there's nothing yeah. afterwards. You don't want to so die. They talk about- <laughs> 
you know, they say things like, you know, oh, I really regret that I never got to enter a sailboat race <laughs> or whatever their thing was. You whatever know. the regret is. Yeah, they just have these regrets and then Bucket list. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's so such a difference. I know, yeah, I know we talked a lot about it. I'm interested though in this issue of the psychology of religion because this is how this whole thing came about. Why I reached out to you in the first place was that mm -hmm. somebody asked me on Twitter probably about a month or two ago this question about does religion cause mental health problems and issues? So I thought, oh, what better person to talk to than Dr. Terry Daniel? Because I know you've studied the psychology of religion and this is what you kind of do for a living. Now you sent me a ton of articles and I read through a lot of them. We're absolutely fascinating about cults and psychology, which I've studied a lot. So how does all that come around to this issue of the psychology of religion as you see it? Well, it, it really starts with how and why religion is created. And so I think, you know, that we're here in the world, it's scary and vulnerable to be a human being on the earth. You know, you got to stay warm, you got to find food. It's really awful shitty place to be. Mm -hmm. And we create these notions of safety, something that makes us feel like we're contained, like there's some sort of container of safety around us because we really can't live without that. And an example I give of this, maybe I talked to you about this, it might have been someone else recently. Did you ever see the movie Quest for Fire? Did we talk about this? I'm not sure. Maybe we did. So this was a movie from maybe the early 90s uh, with Ray Don Chong was in it. And anyway, this movie Quest for Fire, and it took place with all these very primitive people like Neanderthal times. And at one point, a predator is coming into their village, like a tiger or something. And they're all freaking out and running away from the tiger. And all of a sudden, this big mastodon comes clumping into the village and scares the tiger away. And the minute that happens, they start bowing down to the mastodon and gathering up little clumps of grass and offering it and feeding it. And so this becomes their god. Mm -hmm. So there is just, you know, something in human nature that wants something literally bigger because the mastodon is bigger than the tiger, mm -hmm. right? On the food chain that can, I guess, protect, protect us. That's amazing. Now, Freud, Freud says that we created, and Freud really hated religion. And, and his theory is that we created religion based on the relationship with the father, the need for a protective father, and we created the God of the Old Testament based on our relationships with our father, who was a protector and also a punisher. Mm -hmm. But I don't like that theory because that only applies to Judeo-Christian image of God. Hindus have fathers, too, who are also protectors and punishments, and they didn't create that kind of God. Mm -hmm. So do you think Freud was reacting to a, a westernized kind of Christian context? I mean, obviously, he was. that's the setting that he was in. But yeah, there's that's, so many other religions worldwide and belief systems that don't resemble sort of Judeo-Christian belief system at all. So yeah. that doesn't fit his model in, entirely, does it? Yeah. So, but that's what he knew. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, and then you context. know, by contrast, you look at somebody else like Carl Jung, who was a contemporary of Freud's, who was really into multicultural studies of mythology and religious beliefs. So on this subject of mental health and religion, I mean, you're right in the prime spot, aren't you? Because you're dealing with people who are in hospice care. They're dying in many cases. And as we talked about, I mean, some of them are freaking out 
Do you find that that's an issue, this whole thing about their religious beliefs causes perhaps mental health issues? Well, mental health, I think we're talking about mental health issues like throughout a lifetime rather Mm -hmm. than just at the bedside. You know, that's not really just a mental health issue. But if you look at, you know, people who have escaped from cults, you escaped from a cult. Mm Mm-hmm. How does that affect your mental health? You seem reasonably healthy to me. You know? <laughs> oh, if only you knew me, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's got to be some stuff in there that never oh, yeah. goes away. It's true. Well, and somebody pointed out when I, I threw this question out in our Facebook group and someone said, now, wait a minute, we have to think about mental health is not just a blanket thing. Right. You could be talking about someone who's got a chemical or hormonal imbalance or something like schizophrenia or bipolar Religion is not going to cause that, surely, but it could exacerbate. What if someone who is schizophrenic or bipolar becomes religious? Does it exacerbate their already existing issues that they might be struggling with? Well, I'm sure there have been a lot of studies on that, but I can tell you my own experience with that. As a chaplain in the hospital, I used to have to conduct Sunday services in the psychiatric ward, Mm. which was my favorite thing to do of all. And those people, it was, you know, the really serious ones. These were hospitalized people and they loved coming to Sunday services. And here I would be coming from my secular view, trying to present them with something that would make them comfortable. And they were absolutely fanatic. And if I gave a little lecture or offered a blessing that didn't specifically say Jesus or Father, Son, the Holy Ghost or whatever they wanted to hear, they would freak out and get really mad and yell at me. Hmm. So I think, yeah, and because, well, you know, they're, they don't have a solid inner core to draw on. So they're living in fantasy worlds and not in present time or living in the past and the future, or they're traumatized. So a traumatized person does not ever live in the present. They're either reliving the past or being afraid of what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And so here they all are. And religion can't help but exacerbate that, or they're going to cling even harder to religion. And then you look at, I I talked about this with the uh, how-to heretics recently, Mm -hmm. about the language of prayer and Christian hymns. And uh, we were looking at this video, I can send you the link for it, of some evangelical church where they were singing a song called Unworthy. Perhaps you know this song. I'm sure I do. I'm sure I've sung it in churches many, many times. Yeah. And the people, you know, there's people like up on the stage and you can just tell looking at them like the young, you know, you can tell that this guy is like an ex-heroin addict and just older people that you just know have just been steeped in fear their whole life. And they're singing this song and the preacher is leading it and the camera's panning the audience and you're looking at hundreds of people who are just sitting there saying, unworthy unworthy lord i am so unworthy that's got to mess up your mental health that it does talk about negative self-talk you know Mm. well just before we started this call i was reading a chapter in karen garst's book women v religion and it's by candace gorham fantastic book but this chapter is really interesting because she does delve into this issue of mental health and she's a counselor a therapist who's been seeing people who who are religious mostly evangelicals. So over the years, she's kind of compiled a list of the common things that she sees over and over and over. And the biggest ones she talks about are dealing with guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to depression, anxiety, PTSD, 
which then start manifesting themselves in all sorts of real life, other issues, substance abuse, weight gain, weight loss, you know, extreme issues like that. So it's got to have, well, it does affect people. Absolutely does. You know, it's weird that there's like a two-sided thing to the guilt and shame thing. So the religion puts you in a space of extreme unbearable guilt and shame, mm -hmm. but it also puts you into a community of other people who feel exactly the same way. Right. Yeah. So it's you're a communal not, experience. Yeah. So you're not really marginalized by your guilt and shame mm -hmm. because you're in, you're of, it, with people of like mind, everybody feels equally ashamed and guilty and horrible and they're all standing there telling each other this lie of the way you feel is the right way to feel you mm -hmm. have the the special password to god and we all have it and those people outside of our circle do not have it there's a payoff for living in that kind of mental state and the mm -hmm. payoff is you'll never be alone yeah we you'll have always, community yeah you'll always have this community even so, though we're all singing the song unworthy, we're yeah, all we're unworthy. All, <laughs> and we're all mentally ill. You know, and, we're all, and we all, we, ha, we loathe ourselves. We hate ourselves. We see ourselves and our loved ones and everybody, really everybody in the world as being unworthy, mm -hmm. but at least we recognize our unworthiness and are doing something about it. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing about it? I don't know. We're just re reminding God that we know that we're unworthy. Yeah, why do we need to sing that song? You know, <laughs> we're telling God that we know we're so unworthy for the purpose of what exactly? Yeah. For the purpose of what? You know, acknowledging your unworthiness, does that get you into heaven faster than? Mm. Yeah, it's like a form of <laughs> self-flagellation, I guess. You're beating yourself up to keep yourself, you know, humble. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Well, well, and that's, you know, there's been models for that. I mean, the early, the church fathers, the early Christian, you know, saints and martyrs, I mean, they literally beat themselves yeah, up for self-flagellation and they, you know, starved themselves and they lived in a hole in the ground. You know? Yeah. Well, Luther nearly died. He went out and laid in the snow yeah. one night and nearly froze to death. One, he probably would have died if, if it hadn't been for one of his fellow monks going out and finding him in the snow and dragging him back inside and warming him up and bringing him back to life. And it was all to punish himself for these supposed sins that he had committed, even as a monk, you know? So yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It was a thing. And maybe psychologically, it's still a thing. We're not whipping ourselves with, you know, on our own backs, but mentally we are, or Christians are, or believers. Well, you know, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental or Psychiatric Disorders, DSM, has all these little checklists of symptoms of various mental health disorders. And if you look at schizoid affective disorder or schizophrenic or any number of these, and it has this list, this checklist, and you look at those early Christian mystics, they pretty much hit nine out of 10 of everything on that list. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I remember this is, um, you know, there's things like hearing voices and seeing hallucinations and self deprivation and starvation, not taking care of the body, isolating from the community, separating from the family, being completely cut off from all human contact. Mm -hmm. Long, long list. Every one of those guys did that. And one of the items on the list is not dressing appropriately for the weather. <laughs> That would do it. And I think of St. Francis, you know, that was like a big thing about him walking barefoot in the snow. And yet they were seen as holy men, weren't they? Yeah, but they would be. All the rest of it.
they would be thrown in the psych ward in a minute today. Yeah. It's so amazing. Well, one of the things that Candace Gorham said that really, it kind of hit me just a little bit ago as I was reading through the chapter, she said, you know, she's talking about guilt, this guilt and shame piece and how that affects our mental health. She said, if you think about it, the Bible contains literally hundreds of prohibitions, commands, laws about what things God hates, things that are considered sins. And Mm -hmm. she said, okay, so you take that piece. And that's, I thought, well, that's true. The the Old Testament law, that's what it's all about. It literally says God hates. It literally says there's no ambiguity, hundreds and hundreds of things. And then she says, everyone knows that they're imperfect, or as you say, the song unworthy. We all know we're unworthy, but God has all these things he hates. And so anything I do say, think, could potentially land me in hot water. So then that feeds into the whole guilt and shame piece, which then leads to anxiety, depression, and other things. So it's this really toxic mix, I think. Yeah, I'm looking right now for the list. There's like seven specific things that God hates. Um, I'm looking at them right now. Uh, A lying tongue, devilish, uh, wicked imagination. Uh, These are all of them. I'll I'll look for it again. It's in Proverbs. The Ten Commandments as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which, but literally, there are things, it literally says the word hate. God hates yeah, yeah. this. God, God hates, hates this. God hates that. And then there's a bunch of stuff you're just not supposed to do or think. So yeah, no wonder. And yet, like she said, we all know we're imperfect. We all know we're flawed. We're going to make a mistake. And that gets us into this cycle of, okay, I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm a worm. But I've got to crawl back to God, ask for his forgiveness, And then I guess I feel better about myself until I slip up again, you know? So there's this vicious cycle. It's an endless cycle. It's an endless cycle of failure. You can never win. And I always thought, I think that's why the virgin birth myth is so powerful Mm -hmm. because according to that myth, and Mary isn't the only mother who had a virgin birth in across religions and cultures, but it's something that no woman can actually do in real life. So it sets this impossibly high bar that we can't do that. So, and, and we also can't raise ourselves from the dead, right? So the whole thing is setting up this thing. It's like, you will never, ever reach this level. You're always going to be lower than mm-hmm. this thing called God. And, you know, that's one of the things I like about Buddhism is that there is no God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the highest thing you can be is completely within your own power. There's no outside third party yeah, you're setting. offloading your responsibilities, which is something right. that does happen in religion, isn't it? You can offload your responsibilities onto God or whatever deity you're worshiping. If things bad happen, that could be the result of Satan or the devil or some other opposing forces. I'm not responsible for anything right. <laughs> at the end of the day. It was the devil who made me do it, man. That's what it was. Well, and the other weird part about that thinking is all good things come from God and all bad things come from the devil. And so mm. I often say to my students, you know, is it possible? How can it be possible that anything is not from God? If you believe in this omnipotent, all-knowing God, then everything in creation comes from this God. Oh, no, no, you know, gay people don't come from this God. You know, it's like, or, you know, plagues and diseases, you know, COVID didn't come from God. Well, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And the only answer you can come up with is if you have to separate it is 
Satan. That's why Satan was created. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Yeah, either way, you take no responsibility for it. If it's good or if it's bad, it's completely out of our hands. We're we're nothing. Hmm. Well, and there's another aspect to it. Going back to your point, you said, okay, I was raised in a cult, which is true. I was raised in the Bill Gothard fundamentalist Bible cult context. What about in your experience? I don't know if you if you have any experience of this, but the difference between people like me who were raised in a cult or a religion versus those who might have entered it later in their life uh, lifetime. So in other words, in my case, the mental health issues were just baked in because mm-hmm. I believed it all from ba- day one. I, I believed hell was real. I believed the rapture was going to happen and there was a good chance I was going to miss it. And that led to all sorts of mental health issues. But for someone who was, let's say, an adult who becomes a Christian, they've already had a chance to kind of create their own identity. And then they become a Christian. Maybe then they leave the church and they've got other issues to deal with. But surely there must be a difference in terms of the mental health in in those two individuals. Well, you know, it might depend on why the person becomes a Christian. A lot of people become a Christian as a response to trauma. Hmm. Or they uh, find God in prison. Right, hit rock bottom. Yeah, they hit rock bottom. And so in that sense, you know, it it can be argued that that's better than being a junkie. It's just a different form of being a junkie. But Different addiction. It's it's a little less dangerous, you know. But it it is really replacing one addiction with another. And then for people that are raised in it, of course, you can speak to this better than I can. You know, I, I'm on a lot of the of atheist websites and recovering from religion pages on Facebook. And the people who are leaving are so, they're struggling forever because they're never really sure. Mm. And, you know, they're surrounded by a family who is still in the cult. And so they don't have the social support that someone would have to come to a healthy state of mind. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think saying that it leads to mental, mental illness is too harsh, but it, it ends to, it leads to social adjustment problems, self-worth problems, relationship problems. I heard from a guy the other day whose wife is Mormon and he left being Mormon and she's very devout and he won't have any of it, but he'll, he's never going to get divorced. Mm. How do you live in a situation? It's just, it right. can't be healthy for your mind. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, I've talked to many people who they're in a marriage or a relationship. And like you say, one partner has deconstructed and maybe left their religion or faith, church or belief system, and the other one hasn't. And they double down a lot of times and say, well, I'm going to dig in even more. And that becomes essentially, like you said, it's an impossible situation. Some people are able to make it work somehow. I don't know how they do, but... In my case, we were lucky that we both deconstructed kind of at the same time. We had a very different path that we took, but we, we got there in the end in the sense that we both were walking away from Christianity. So we're very, very fortunate. One of the few, I guess, we can have those discussions and we agree on pretty much everything when it comes to the, the views of religion. Well, this guy said to me, well, it's really no different than people, you know, a couple uh, that have different political parties or views. And I, I mm. said, I beg to differ. It's way different than that. Because this goes down to the core of your being. This goes down to how you see yourself in the world. 
And being a Republican or a Democrat, or at least prior to the last four years, mm -hmm. didn't really drill down that far. But your religious beliefs, assuming you have them, it touches everything. It's huge. You know, it's just, it's, it's existential. You know, it's what am I? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. of course, all of that leads up to the moment of death when you're like, what was all this? What was the, yeah. the, the last 70 years of physical life for? And, and is it going to just now end? Mm -hmm. And if it starts from nothing and you live for 70 years and you go back to nothing, what was the point? Yeah. What have I been That's doing a, with my whole life? You yeah. don't want to live with regrets, do you? No, definitely not. I mean, I'm glad I got out when I did, but I sure I have a regret that I spent virtually my whole adult life either in pursuing academics to be a Bible college teacher or a better pastor or theologian or whatever. And then another eight or so years as a teacher and 12 years as a pastor before that, you know, so my whole adult life has been in ministry of some sort or another. So I feel like I'm making amends doing this podcast and doing what I do to make up for, you know, the people and that I works. traumatized. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you know what, that's a perfect amends. It's, it's perfect, so. beautiful balance of that yeah. energy because you're helping so many people mm. who are just following right behind you on that path. I hope so. And I think it's, it's been a long journey because I think for a long time I was just angry. Like you mm -hmm. said, that's, that's part of the, the deconstruction, isn't it? Where you're just lashing out and you're ripping everything to shreds. And I didn't have that family support, like you say. And then you kind of go through these phases where you go, okay, this isn't healthy to stay in the anger. That's very, it can be very toxic, can it? You need to deal with that for sure. You have to sit in that and reconcile it. But then at a certain point, you've got to start rebuilding. And what are you going to do then? So for me, it's very productive to do this podcast because I feel like I'm, I'm gaining energy back from it. You know, when I meet people like you, I mean, we would have never met <laughs> in real life. Ever, real life. <laughs> you know? no, but this is real life. For, Pod yeah, podcast life is the new real life. And then it turns out you live just a few minutes from where we used to live oh, in yeah. Oregon. You know how weird is that? It's funny. It's <laughs> you oh, know, and it's, it's so true, isn't it? But then even yeah. what you're going back to what you were saying about the family thing, because I got an email from my mom on my birthday in uh, December, the end of December, and I have not spoken with her in probably six or seven years. I had to cut her out of my life because she was so toxic. Wow. And she sent me a paragraph with no, no context around it from a book about somebody who had walked away from God and then came back and found him again. And that was it. That was the email, <laughs> you know? So even and after six in or seven years. Toxic. I mean, that's yeah. like sending you a pipe bomb. Yeah. And I just, I think if, if that would have been three or four or five years ago, I would have been really upset, angry and devastated as it was. I just kind of said, I think I know where she's coming from. I'm not going to engage. I didn't respond. I didn't reply. I didn't waste any emotional energy on it. I just put it, I've got a folder in my, in, in, in my emails, just labeled mom. And I just stuck it in there you know? wow. and it's done. I, I'm not, I didn't let it destroy me, but man, stuff like that is very passive aggressive, isn't it? It's very passive aggressive. And you're, and I, I respect your choice of what you did with it. You know, another thing you could do is send her back an email with another quote. You know, hey, I, from, I could do that from another book. Do, from another book. Yeah. And you guys could, I mean, if I was, if I was, if you wanted to restore that relationship, that might be a way to start doing it is to just feed each other, you know, send her a quote from Rumi or something, mm. something that's Christopher Hitchens. Not, not Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> Don't go straight Part to the something a little more gentle. No Sam Harris. 
But that's right. I think that that's a good observation. It was so strange because she didn't, there was no context, no hello, no, hey, I think we need to start a conversation. It was just a quote from a book. And I think, you know, she's concerned about me going to hell. So as you say, it affects everything. She's worried that I'm going to go to hell. So she's giving me this stuff like, hey, you need to get back on the path here. You know, so going back to this issue of mental health and religion, there you go. She's probably racked with anxiety about my eternal state. Well, you know what else she probably is? She's older. She's probably looking at end of life. And the reason mm -hmm. she's worried about you going to hell is because she'll never see you in eternity because she'll be in heaven and you'll be in hell. Mm -hmm. And that could be what prompted her to reach out to you, in, even though it was so passive aggressive. Yeah. Is, you know, a lot of older people, as they face end of life, start thinking about that and they don't want to be estranged yeah. from their kids. So, so that's her way of reaching out. Yeah. Mental health and religion. What a topic, man. Um, yeah. glad we've kind of scratched the surface. I think there's some more people that I want to talk to. I did reach out to Dr. Marlene Winnell, but unfortunately mm -hmm. she's too busy right now, but I'm going to keep her on the back burner. I'm thinking yeah. I might chase up Candace Gorham and I'm mm -hmm. going to talk to some of the other people I've had on the show talking about religious trauma syndrome. So this will not be the last word on mental health and religion, but thank you so much for spending the time to kind of unpack this a little bit. Yeah, there's something I want to tell you. One of my, and now, you know, as I said earlier, I, I do teach at a seminary and I basically teach death, dying and bereavement and also multicultural approaches mm -hmm. to end of life care and illness. And uh, a course I'm teaching right now is spiritual care for marginalized communities. So if you're a chaplain and chaplains are supposed to be neutral, you should be able to walk into a hospital room and talk to a Buddhist, a Christian, a Jew, an atheist, a Hindu, everybody the same. Not the same, but you can you meet mm -hmm. them where they are. So one of my students sent me something really interesting to show me how important it is to have a religious structure in his mind. And he said there was a study by some architects about what it does psychologically to people when they have a physical fence around a property or no fence. And they did this study with preschool kids in a school and the teachers would take them to a playground that had no fence. It was just open. The kids could have run away mm -hmm. if they wanted to. And the kids were scared and they all huddled around the teacher and they did not venture out very far. And then they took the kids to a different playground that did have a fence and they ran around and they played. And so my student's point was that if we don't have a fence, we're not fully living because we're so afraid to not have that container around us. And religion is the container. That was mm -hmm. his point. Religion is the fence. Religion is the fence. But at the same time, you could argue it's literally fencing us in. It's not a liberating thing. It's a, we're in a concentration camp. Well, that's what he wants. I think what he's saying is that it's better for us to be fenced in. And then we go back to the theology is we're not capable of thinking for ourselves, mm. right? We yeah. think wrong thoughts. We make, you know, we're not capable. Only God can lead us. We shouldn't mm. lead. Isn't that something in scripture about be careful of your own thoughts? They can't be trusted. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And you know, there's a lot of verses like that where it's like, you shouldn't trust lean not on your own understanding and in all your it. ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's the one. You know, I remember quoting that verse in Bible college, you know, it was another one you had to memorize, but then when you actually break it down, what it's saying is don't trust your own intuition. Don't trust in your own mentality, your own critical thinking. You've got to turn everything over to let go and let God. 
Yeah. And so you can't feel safe or comfortable unless that fence is wrapped around you. Yeah. Well, I don't and want so, a fence, man. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he posted this in our online class and I wrote back to him and I said, okay, I can understand what you're saying. There's all kinds of fences, you know, a social network is a fence, a community, perhaps a national identity or an ethnic identity. You could call all those things a fence, but the fence has to have gates in it. There have to be openings. It has to be a mm -hmm. fence that you can walk through instead of a just, you know, a yeah, cage. Complete barricade. Yeah. yeah. We're not in Auschwitz here. We don't, we need to get out of this thing. Yeah. Well, listen, Tara, this has been great chatting with you. I'm curious, too, to find out. So where can people find you? Where, where's your podcast? And what's a good place to get a hold of you in terms of social media? Best place to find me is uh, askdrdeath.com. And that's doctor spelled out, not D-R, because D-R is Dr. Kevorkian. So it's askdrdeath.com. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those of you who are somewhat spiritually minded, who are interested in things like near-death experience and out-of-body journeys and deathbed visions, you can go to my website, spiritualityandgrief.com. Right. And, and what are, and, are you on Twitter anywhere? Uh, I am, but I don't do Twitter. Very, I, I think you're the only person I ever really look at <laughs> The only Twitter. person we talk to on Twitter. <laughs> Pretty much. You have uh, one follower other, and it's me. Yeah. I, th I, do, I think I have like five followers. You know? Okay. You're not a big but Twitter I, person. I, you got I go more than Twitter. Donald Trump does right now. Yeah. <laughs> Look at it that and just way. Just for the record, today was the inauguration. I don't know when this is going to air, but yep. as, as we're doing this recording, ago, it's over. It's all over. Yeah. Goodbye, Donald Trump. And so thank you so much. This has been great chatting with you once again. Let's not wait two years to do another episode, though. We need to do these more often. Yeah, absolutely. I love talking to you. I appreciate your show so much.